For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet some Tucsonans who are working today to help prevent water shortages tomorrow. I'll talk with Anne Hampton Calloway about her love affair with America's greatest songs and coming to Tucson to celebrate a century of Ella Fitzgerald. Find out how social activism is powering Tucson's newest performance arts company, Digna Theater. And stories of kindness in action across our community. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Concerns about water shortages in Arizona are nothing new. But while the latest predictions from federal officials may seem dire, experts say there are many ways that we can all help to prevent water crisis in the future. Christopher Conover reports. The snow fell in the Rockies and the rains came in the spring, but Tom Bashotsky, the director of the Arizona Department of Water Resources, says this year that didn't matter so much. We had good snowpack throughout the winter but it got drier and warmer than normal. And so instead of the water from the snow making it into the river and into Lake Powell, it evaporated into the air. That reduction in the amount of water flowing into the Colorado River, Bashotsky says, led the Federal Bureau of Reclamation to change its forecast for the amount of water in Lake Mead. We are still in good shape for January 1 of 2018, but for January 1 of 2019, the projection for Lake Mead elevation went down by 20 feet. So we are projecting to be only one and a half feet above the shortage trigger in January 1, 2019. And if shortage is declared, Arizona loses about 11% of its Colorado River entitlement, about 320,000 acre feet out of 2.8 million. Uh, Water banking and replenishment of groundwater will be cut and agricultural water users who have their water delivered by the Central Arizona Project, Maricopa Pinal, and some in Pima County will lose about half of their Colorado water supply. Those cuts only apply to agricultural users, so water will still come out of your tap at home. But some people aren't waiting for a shortage. They're conserving water now. Kathleen Marin and her husband retired to Tucson in 2015. It was not a difficult decision to want to reduce their water usage. When we bought the house, this whole yard was a sand pit, literally like a, a, a sandbox, or you see people's front yards that are just dirt. And uh, it was sad. Kathy wanted color in her yard and found a magazine that had exactly what she wanted. But when she talked with consultants, they laughed and said no. These are not viable plants. These are not native plants to this area. And if you want to have a green garden, you got to be smart about it and use the water from the sky. So they put in two large cisterns in a narrow section of their yard. The 1,000 gallons of water helps keep the garden growing. But how much water can a rooftop really supply? Joaquin Murieta with the Watershed Management Group says plenty. There is a rule of thumb. You have 1,000 square footage of surface, you have one inch of rain, 
you get 600 gallons. Since the monsoon hasn't arrived yet and Tucson hasn't seen much rain since the spring, many cisterns like the one Kathleen and her husband put in have run dry. But not to worry, there's a solution for that. When we decided to have the laundry to landscape system in, I had a plumber come in and give me some information about how it works or what I needed to do. I wasn't interested in like big excavation or reconstruction. And uh, he said, you, you, you got to pick a plumber that has done this before and can explain it to people like me. And all he did was he took the water that comes out of the washer and instead of directly going into the sewer, he put a, a switch on it so that I can have it go out to the landscape. The piping runs out of the house and to two fruit trees and some other plants. I space out the laundry now so that in this heat like this, I water them maybe three times a week. I've harvested about 20 peaches so far. Two years later, after installing all the systems, she says she has no regrets. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Tune in to PBS 6 this Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. Christopher Conover guest hosts a special edition of Arizona Week dedicated to the topic of water issues and conservation. Singer Anne Hampton Calloway may be famous to some of our listeners for singing the theme to the TV show The Nanny, but that represents just one highlight in a career of more than four decades, including two dozen albums and collaborations with some of the greatest names in jazz and musical theater. This year finds Anne getting back to her cabaret roots as a singer and pianist. She has a one-woman show that celebrates the legacy of the First Lady of Song, Ella Fitzgerald. Anne Hampton Calloway will be in Tucson next weekend as a guest of the Invisible Theater. Well, I think that Ella Fitzgerald uh, had a very huge impact on the 20th century, uh, where she gave us extraordinary recordings of the great American songbook and jazz classics, and really made a mark on the recording world and people's hearts uh, with, with the most beloved songs and uh, her iconic singing style. Everything she sang came from her heart and had a certain kind of warmth and joy that we don't hear from many singers. And this being the centennial of Ella Fitzgerald, since she was born in Newport News in 1917, I've sort of painted a portrait of her in this show that... Uh, talks about her as a person, as she un unfolded her uh, musical imagination throughout her career and was inspired by her fellow artists, and also the mark she made uh, and ways she changed the world. And so people tell me it's their favorite way to see me. They have me all to themselves, and it's <laughs> very personal. I'm at the piano singing and telling stories, and it's, it's just a delightful way to, uh, to share an evening of music. 
Well, when you were going about selecting the songs that you wanted to sing from Ella's uh, amazing repertoire, what kind of compass did you use? Well, I, I wanted to tell a story, so I wanted to choose some iconic songs to frame the story. And then, for instance, one of the moments in the show is showing Ella, as, imagining Ella as a woman starting a career out at a very young age with lots of male musicians. What was it like as a woman discovering love and romance? And so I chose two songs I put together to kind of capture the spirit of what that must have been like. Um, and it also has personal moments, um, like the day I found out Ella Fitzgerald passed away right before I released the recording to Ella with Love that I made in 1996. And um, then I kind of choose my favorite. You know, these are songs that I have to feel strongly about and that I sing and put my own stamp on. I sometimes describe Ella's voice as being like a beam of sunlight. It's a little brighter and a little sweeter than you think it's going to be every time you listen to it. That's a very beautiful way of, of saying it, yes. You know, I think so many singers get applauded for their pathos and their darkness, the smokiness and sultriness of their voices, but because of the brightness of her voice and the brightness of her spirit, and despite many challenges in her life, she always did have a sunny side of the street kind of feeling about her singing that brought a lot of joy and continues to bring a lot of joy to people, and certainly to me. Somewhere there's music How faint the tune Somewhere there's heaven How high the moon There is no moon above When love is far away too Till it comes true and tell us, where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago my first uh, 10 years of my life. And uh, my dad, who was a journalist, uh, moved us to New York when I was 10. And so I had a really wonderful childhood of balancing Chicago and New York. When was it that you first realized that your voice was such a special instrument? Actually, my third grade teacher, Miss Lawrence, was asking people to sing in class. And she said, oh, Anne, you have such a beautiful voice. And I went home to my mom, who was a singer and a pianist. And I said, Mom, Miss Lawrence said I had a beautiful voice. And she said, well, of course you do. You're a Callaway. <laughs> and, um, you know, I never, all I knew is that I loved music and my whole family loved music. I didn't know that I had a special talent. I just thought everybody sang. And I thought everybody's father sang scat around the house and... I thought everyone's mother sang torch songs at the piano. I didn't realize that, that our lives were, were kind of special. And then when we moved to New York, I started playing guitar and writing songs and listening to singer-songwriters like Joni Mitchell and Carole King and, and exploring that side of my musicality while I was still listening to Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald and some of those marvelous artists. So it was a very interesting unfolding of of my discovery of, of my love of music and and a lot of different things to try to keep track of, singing, writing, playing the piano, performing. Every part of my year is working with great sidemen, whether it's a big band, whether it's an orchestra, whether it's my trio. And then I do shows like the one I'm going to be doing in Tucson, uh, where I'm at the piano again, my very roots. Share with us a piece of advice that you have found instrumental in your career, whether they were a musician or not, who said something to you that has really stuck in terms of personal musical advice? 
One of the best pieces of advice that I got uh, about songwriting was from Barbara Streisand. I was doing rewrites for my piece anthem at the same time for her. And she, I didn't know why she wanted me to rewrite some of the lines. So I said, well, Barbara, you know, I finally got to have her on the phone. And I said, well, what do you really want? She said, well, Anne, I want it to be simple but profound. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, well, I want, I want well, the first time you hear a lyric, I want you to understand what it means. But then after you hear it again and again, I want you to have new meanings. So whenever I write a song, I think about that. It's just a perfect uh, way of, you know, making sure that there are levels of meaning and uh, emotional undertones that can enrich uh, the experience of, a, of an idea. I have a feeling, it's a feeling I'm concealing, I don't know why. The Invisible Theater's Sizzling Summer Sound Series continues with Anne Hampton Calloway at the Skyline Country Club for three shows next Saturday and Sunday, July 15th and 16th. Tucson is now home to a new theatrical company, one that's driven by an important mission. The founders of Digna Theater are dedicated to producing plays about human rights in a global context, something they hope will promote awareness and activism on a local scale. Next, Natalia Navarro tells us more. Tucson's new theater company, Digna Theater, premiered its first play earlier this year. The sold-out one-woman show featured a biographical character based on controversial human rights lawyer and former nun, Digna Ochoa, who was killed in Mexico City in 2001 in what some people believe was a politically motivated attack later ruled a suicide by the Mexican government. Patricia Davis is a Washington, D.C.-based playwright and author of Digna. Digna was a very intelligent, very talented and feisty human rights lawyer from a small town in the mountains in Mexico. She was defending accused guerrillas, and she was also prosecuting the army, as well as the police, on charges of human rights abuse. Actor Alba Jaramillo played the character of Ochoa in the play. Good evening. My name is Digna Ochoa. I'm not here to give testimony. Testimony is for a court of law when there's some hope of justice. There won't be justice in my case. That ship has sailed. That ship has sunk. But I am going to use my life as an example so you can see what resistance looks like. The company, incubated by the YWCA of Southern Arizona, adopted Digna Ochoa's name to represent their goal of human rights activism. Fighting for justice was in Ochoa's blood, but it was far from easy for her. Davis says during Ochoa's career, she received many death threats, was kidnapped, raped and tortured by suspected police officers, and was finally murdered for her work. And at least once she had to flee the country, and she went into exile in Washington, and that's when I met her. After Ochoa's time in Washington, D.C., even with the threats of retaliation she faced, Ochoa chose to go back to Mexico City. She believed that it was important not to be swayed by possible violence and to return to her human rights work. What do you think will happen when you go back? My therapist asked. I answered her honestly. I believe that they will kill me. So why did I go? Why did I go back? Davis was inspired to write Digna after the international news broke about the disappearance of the 43 students from Iguala, Guerrero, Mexico, 
in September 2014. The students from a rural teaching college were en route to Mexico City when they were intercepted by police. What exactly happened after that is still unclear, and the students have yet to be found. The Mexican government's inaction caused numerous protests, and many still believe that the government's response and subsequent investigation was severely deficient. And I went to a vigil outside the White House, and I wondered to myself, when was the last time I'd been at a vigil for Mexico? And I realized it was the vigil that we organized when Digna was killed. And so I began to think about what Digna would say about what's happened to Mexico in the last 15 years. And so I thought that it would be good to have Digna return from the dead, at least as I could imagine her, to talk about Mexico and to talk about her life and her choices and to talk about resistance. Davis says her play is different than a biographical drama of a person like Martin Luther King Jr., who most recognize as a hero because even Mexican human rights activists are split on how Ochoa died. The government's version is this. I made a fingerprint bruise on my neck, smashed my leg against the desk, cut myself above the eyebrow, threw my headband on the floor, spat out my gun, put half of it on the floor, smeared half of it on my jacket, pulled a button off my collar, shot myself with my left hand. I would have had to turn the pistol upside down to get the trajectory right. For nine months, director Barkley Goldsmith, known for his years of activism with Borderlands Theater, actor Alba Jaramillo, and the rest of the Digna Theater team worked through the Digna script to share Ochoa's message of resistance with the Tucson community. Goldsmith says all involved were deeply affected by the play's content. We immersed ourselves in, in not only looking at the script, but understanding the world of this play, which takes place mainly in Mexico and includes uh, many, many issues around uh, disappearances and torture and betrayal. So it's a heavy historical subject. Jaramillo, herself a human rights activist and lawyer, identified with the character of Ochoa from the beginning. Goldsmith says she was born to play the part. It was her destiny. I don't like using that word, but I think it was in a way her destiny. There's almost two stories being told. What's on the script in terms of, um, you know, the politics. But then there's an internal struggle about her coming to terms with her death and, and how that came about and, and actually, you know, retelling her story and changing the narrative so that, so that people remember her not, not based on what the government says, which is that she committed suicide, but her own story of resistance. Jaramillo says the main theme of resistance against injustice is heard throughout the production. But beyond that is the personal struggle of the character and the audience working together to find worthiness within themselves. One of the main messages is, is the question is, do you consider yourself to be fundamentally worthy? Her name, Digna, means worthy. Um, I don't think anyone ever wants to admit that they might not see themselves as completely worthy. Goldsmith was struck by the effect the play had on its audiences. I was amazed at the breadth of responses that this play has created in people. I've been humbled by it. Uh, I don't think I'll look at the world quite the same 
as I did six months ago. Resistance doesn't get you killed. No. You have a right to resist within the confines of the law. You forgot that. Some of you. Didn't you? The group plans to bring the play back in the fall, both in English and in Spanish. I'm Natalia Navarro for Arizona Spotlight. Does it seem that random acts of kindness are on the endangered list? It's a topic on which opinions can vary. On Wednesday morning, I went to the Hemel Park Library in Midtown Tucson to talk with people about witnessing or being a part of acts of kindness committed in our community. I didn't meet anyone without a story to share. My name is Jean, and I've lived in Tucson since the end of 1990. And my little mutt here is Hazel, and she rescued me in uh, about 2009 after my partner died. So she's my partner now. She seems like a real sweetie. She is. Can you think of any particular act of kindness that you've seen recently? Yes, there was a wonderful gentleman down here for some medical help. He's from near Flagstaff, and uh, he's an Navajo man, and um, so he was here trying to get a, a ticket home because he didn't have quite enough money to get home. And so I fortunately had a little money with me and gave him some, but I went in the library and I told the librarians that, and they came out and they pitched in and gave him enough to get him home, which I thought was very kind because they, there's so many people around here that need help, and they happened to do that for him. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. There's a, an energy in Tucson that I like, and people are friendly, and it's just, a, I find a very good place to live. Hi, could you tell me who you are? Yes, my name is Lasha Tizer. I'm a, what's called a community Dharma leader, and I teach classes on meditation, mindfulness, and Buddhist studies. And so uh, this is something that we talk about often, especially in the conditions that are going on now in um, the government and how it's affecting the population of our country. And how do we um, relate to this in a way that uh, isn't harming ourselves or harming another person? And part of that is cultivating kindness toward oneself and towards others. Something the Dalai Lama says is that other people really want the same thing as you. And what people really want deep inside is happiness. And sometimes we get misguided. We have influences in our life that turn us in the wrong direction from that. Where my husband works, the staff there, they look out for each other. And he loves going to work. He just loves it. It's really, really special. He usually comes home with a smile on his face. It's great. My name is Ross. I'm 63 years old, uh, currently retired. 
and for the last several years, uh, I've been a volunteer alongside a wonderful group of people at the United Nations Association Center, which is the formal name of a retail environment that everybody generically knows as the UNICEF store. It's one of very few such stores in the entire country. It's the largest and most successful. It, it's something that seems to make Tucson unique, that there are a number of individuals, and some with physical challenges, uh, go there and raise money for children around the world who they will never meet. Hi, my name is Johanna, and I'm a graduate of the U of A many moons ago. But currently I'm a teacher here at Sonoran Science Academy in Tucson, and I am on my summer break, which I am enjoying. And I recently, within the last half hour, had a situation where I was at the post office, and I was wearing a little novelty necklace that the gal who was helping me at the post office office commented upon and she said I really admire it and she was showing me her bracelet and all of a sudden I was getting ready to leave the counter and I felt myself unhook the necklace slide the beads off and just put them in a pile and said enjoy and turn around and left and she was over the moon it wasn't really what I did that was the act of kindness but it it was really that I took a moment to be present and listened to what people were saying to me and how they were communicating. And it was really this ritual that I need to remember when I walk back into the classroom in three more weeks. Okay, my name is Mike. My wife and I reside here in Tucson. We lived here for about a year and a half. I'm a freelance writer. About three weeks ago, I was um, parked at an intersection of a speedway in Alvernon. I noticed that a, a gentleman in a wheelchair, an older gentleman, and it was god-awful hot outside, middle of the afternoon, um, was, was moving very slowly across the crosswalk. And as he basically got there to the other side of the crosswalk, um, the light changed, and I moved on ahead, uh, moved forward. But I looked in my rearview mirror, and what I watched was truly amazed me. Apparently his battery in his, in his motorized cart had, had basically run down and he could not get up. Even though it was a, a gradient, he could not get up on the sidewalk on the other way. A pickup truck that was going to make a right-hand turn, a young man jumped out of it and pushed the man up onto the sidewalk. And I watched this from my rearview mirror. And I said, that's Tucson. You just heard the voices of some visitors at the Hemel Park Library. Listen for more stories about acts of kindness, large and small, in the coming weeks on Arizona Spotlight. You can also share your stories at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studio. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>